0: Hello, good evening, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky goodness for your ears. And good news, folks. I've been promising it for weeks and weeks and weeks. We finally have the Lord of the Ring, well, the start, at least, of the Lord of the Rings discussion between me and that uh, former geek at the gate, Alice. So that's coming up just very shortly. Uh, before we do that, I just want to take a second to note that the Battle of the Billionaires continues in space. Richard Branson has indeed flown in his Spaceship 2 spacecraft uh, up into um, just above the edge of space, really, uh, and come back down and bully for him. Uh, There's been a lot of chatter online about how it's a tremendous waste of money, and I can't really disagree. As I said last week, I do like the engineering that's coming out of Virgin Galactic. I think Spaceship Two is a very capable space plane. White Knight Two is a very capable launch vehicle, which I think probably will have commercial applications for putting satellites and such into low Earth orbit much more safely and much more cheaply than SpaceX can do it at the moment, and certainly more cheaply than NASA can do it at the moment. And I think that's a good thing. I think Branson's, ooh, look at me. I'm in space thrill ride approach sort of demeans what the engineers at his company are doing. And I think that's a shame. I think it's a shame that it's given the public the, the impression that, you know, this is all just a billionaire boys club for laughs. It's much more important than that. So, you know, I bully, bully for Branson. I, I didn't like him before he did this. I still don't like him now. So there we go. I'm also a little bit jealous because, of course, if I had Branson's resources, I would have done exactly the same thing. So I'm a bit of a hypocrite, too. But there you go. Anyway, a bit more talky talk after the uh, section of the discussion. Uh, I I need to apologise for a couple of things. First of all, I talk too much, which is known. Um, Also, we we had a couple of issues. We were recording over Discord, which a tried and tested technology here. We've used it for the, uh, the d and games that we played uh, on um, Geeks of the Gates. But I don't know, there, there's a couple of sound glitches that I wasn't able to fix in post. So hopefully you won't notice them, but if you do, apologies in advance. Also, this I've, I've cut the discussion off um, a little bit abruptly because I couldn't find a good place to end the section and, and and it was it was so yeah I, I basically just cut it at the end of a sentence we will pick it up exactly where we leave off next week uh so yeah anyway uh this is my discussion on lord of the rings with the, the wonderful Alice. So, I've been promising a discussion feature for several weeks now and not not getting it sorted out. Finally, we have done it, and over the miracle that is the internet, I am joined by Alice. Alice, welcome back.
1: Hi. Um, so glad was, to be back.
0: That was a regular really pause. I thought for a second Discord had let us down. So, I say welcome back. This is actually the first time you've been on Geeking. Um, but regular listeners will remember you from being probably one of the more prolific contributors to um, Geeks at the Gates back in its Dungeons and Dragons days.
1: Back, back in its Who days as well.
0: Oh, of course, yeah, back in the Who days. But Dungeons and Dragons is sort of more relevant here, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
0: I didn't know this about you until you, you started tweeting about it a while ago. Um, <laughs> but you are as big a fan, if not a bigger fan, of Lord of the Rings than I am. And I'm a very big fan of Lord of the Rings, so um, I figured, who better to talk about all aspects of of Tolkien's magnum opus than than you?
1: Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I yeah I've tweeted about Lord of the Rings a lot, specifically when I decided to rewatch the Lord of the Rings, and um, I'm sure some listeners, if they've dared to venture into the world of Twitter, uh, would have will find my threads. <laughs> Yeah, although, of um, what of, I'd like to call the ramblings of a mad woman.
0: I, I would suggest to listeners that haven't ventured into the realm of Twitter just don't. It's probably it's probably too much of a hellscape these days. <laughs> Mordor has nothing on Twitter.
1: <laughs> it depends where you are on Twitter. There are some nice spaces on Twitter. It's just navigating through the horrible swamp. That's
0: that's fair actually. Yeah, there, 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 there are some. There are some cuddly bits of Twitter, just just not many. I think it's fair to say. So the block button is your friend. <laughs> so we'll talk later about how I got into Lord of the Rings because I got into Lord of the Rings a long time before you did. Uh, because I am so catastrophically old, but you are what I would describe, from where I'm standing, as sort of a young person. So what what got you into Lord of the Rings? Because I I don't like to work in stereotypes, Alice, but you are not somebody that most people would look at and go, oh, bet they like Lord of the Rings in the way that they might do if they looked at me. So what's your origin story? How did you find the ring? <laughs>
1: um, I got into Lord of the Rings because when Peter Jackson decided to produce a adaptation of Lord of the Rings and somehow he was able to get it financed, and was released in cinemas back when I was... Oh, this is the early 2000s, wasn't it, when it that the film was released? It was. My parents took me to the cinema, and that's how that story began, really. And like everyone else who saw the film, were just blown away by the magnitude of the world which is Middle Earth. So you started
0: with the film version of fellowship is that right mm. yeah okay they are really good films i i have to be honest when mm. when i heard that they were making them i was a little bit skeptical for two reasons the first is i didn't think you could do it well in live action because cgi good CGI, the kind of CGI that is actually realistic, was still kinda new back then. I mean this is over twenty years ago now. So I figured, oh no, it's gonna look like a bad episode of Doctor Who, it's gonna be loads of people in rubber masks. And the other reason I was sceptical was because at the time, the only thing of um Peter Jackson's that I'd seen was bad taste. And I I didn't I didn't see that the guy who had made bad taste was going to do a good job of Tolkien's work. Because I was, I was a massive fan of the books, which will surprise nobody. So I was nervous, I have to say. Um, but never been happier to be wrong in my mm. life. Um,
1: I think anybody is when Beloved's book series is being ad- adapt- adapted, aren't they?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, still, I still kind of worry a little bit about any kind of adaptation of anything that I like. Mm. But... Lord of the Lord of the Rings, Struggling to think of a better adaptation. It's different from the books, but it's as good as the books. And unlike most adaptations, for me, it the things that it changes. I can see the reasons why they've been changed, and we we might talk about some of those as we go on. But mm. it it really really hangs together. Yeah. So what was it then? As because she would have been quite young. What was it? That really hooked you in. Was it? Are we talking performances? Are we talking the humour? What aspect of of of, of Polkins world, as presented through the mind of Peter Jackson, was the thing that really grabbed you?
1: I think because growing up, I was always really drawn to the fantasy genre. Like I was, um, I was somebody who was brought up with the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. So I've always had a great and Star Wars and. I think I even started reading Philip Pullman's hit "Dark Materials" around this time. So I I loved fantasy. Mm -hmm. So this really appealed to that kind of because, well, it is—it's the ultimate fantasy series or trilogy, I should say, isn't it? Um, It's what every fantasy—it's a lot of fantasy writers. The Lord of the Rings were probably the first books that they would have read or that inspired them to go on to write. So I think that was one thing. I think the other thing, the other aspects of the films that I just found so incredible was the magnitude of these worlds and just how real they felt. Um, and I think that's all thanks to the fact that Peter Jackson didn't rely on CGI an awful lot. It, it this is what I kind of loved about them, especially after mm. watching all the behind the scenes footage was that they, they did a lot of work on practical effects. So they built a lot of their sets. Um, a lot of detail and love was put into the costumes and props. Like it felt like a real world because they did create almost a real world. Like they, even Hobbiton was essentially like they built, yeah, they, they basically built dug it. and built yeah. Hobbiton into these hills in New Zealand. Um. So, uh, so there wasn't that much artifice there, and I think even children can see and appreciate that. I think mm. even children can see when something is fake or pretty much almost CGI'd. To, I think,
0: um I think actually, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good point about the CGI because I think one of the reasons I'm, I was perhaps so sec- skeptical about it was we just had the Star Wars special editions in the sort of Late-ish 90. And then the, certainly the Phantom Menace was out before Fellowship came out. I'm not sure if uh, Attack of the Clones was. Hello. Reggie from the future here, just dropping in to let you know that, in fact, Attack of the Clones came out in 2002, while Fellowship of the Ring came out in 2001. So the atrocity that is Attack of the Clones, don't fight me on this, it just is, had not yet solid cinema screens. When fellowship came out now back to alice and reg where with all due respect to george lucas the cgi is overwhelming and really quite bad in in the lack of realism and i'd sort of assumed that that's how they were going to have to do lord of the rings so when i watched it and realized hang mm. on a minute these these are practical effects they haven't like done ian mckellen in front being gandalf in front of green screen and then drop the background of bag end in behind him they just built a really tiny interior for bag end and had him wander around and bump his Mm. ceiling in it and that that really blew me away because there's 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 real attention to detail there you know and the scene in brie where the first time the hobbits go there and Mm. is it is it i think it's pippin who's like really impressed that they serve beer in pints and he's got this massive paint pot that's like nearly as big as he is kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, yeah they just made big props. Of course they did. That makes sense. That works. And mm. I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me that a filmmaker would do that. But it didn't occur to me that a filmmaker would do that. Uh, and so I, I really like Peter Jackson's attention to detail mm. right, right from the very start.
1: I think if you see his, his filmography or the work that he had priced that you can see it, that this was somebody who loved film. And was somebody that really cared? Even if it was a going to be a minute detail, or is something that was only going to take a, a few seconds
0: mm-hmm.
1: of film time, he still that that was still important to him. And I think that's why, like I said, the film felt so real, and why the films I remember today as being great examples of not just adapting a book series, but Filmmaking, just in general, really. I think mm. it's why I think if you know anyone who wants to be a filmmaker should really watch The Lord of the Rings because that is a masterclass in filmmaking right there.
0: Yeah, I think it is. I really do think it is. I suppose we, we've been getting bogged down in the in the technicalities of everything. Um, we haven't actually mm. talked about story yet, um, <laughs> yeah. so I'm fairly sure that most people listening to this are probably got at least an inkling of what Lord of the Rings is about. Hello, me again, just dropping back in again from the future, because it occurs to me as I edit this, that some of you out there might not have an inkling about what Lord of the Rings is about, and you might not want it spoiled. So just in case, here's the spoiler horn. Spoilers! Spoilers! So yeah. Spoilers for Lord of the Rings, both the books and the Peter Jackson film trilogy throughout from now on. But if you were going to elevate a picture at me, um, what would you say Lord, Lord of the Rings is about?
1: I think if you were to explain it in one sentence, it's about the battle between good and evil. I mean, I know that's a very simplistic way of putting it, but the struggle to i I remember when I was a teen, I think I had this conversation with my mum when I was a teenager, and the reason and we were talking about why the films were so powerful and it's because it's about and it's not a children's fairy tale version of law of like of the classic tale of the fight the struggle between good and evil it's the whole con it's the story it's how the struggle against evil it it is a struggle it is there is going to be some hardship there Mm -hmm. there is it's not going to be smooth sailing like you see in a lot of children's books or film Mm -hmm. it actually and i think it's a really good book um they really good books or films to have a child watch around ten or eleven. Not and I, you know, kids will go out they'll soon learn that the world is a hard place. Yeah. But I think this is a good way to introduce them to that concept. I that agree. it's going I to be hard when you are faced with evil. But it will be eventually overcome. You have that resilience and tenacity.
0: Yeah, I don't actually think that's a simplistic way of describing the plot either, because it is a, it is really quite a very a simple plot. It has lots mm. of complicated twiddly bits in it, but the basic yeah. is actually very simple, and um, I think that's part of its strength um, because it's a story that we all recognise. Mm. Because you know, every culture has that story of of the little the little guy on the quest to take out the big bad that's threatening everything. You know, mm. uh, yeah, right from Jack and the Beanstalk to um, yeah, you know, in, in China, they've got the journey to the West. And, and, you know, there's so much of that in in cultural over. We all recognize the story. And by keeping the plot very simple, we're allowed to care, mm. to get to know about and to care about the characters. By the end of Lord of the Rings, you know the characters very well, I think, because Tolkien spends so much of his time on characterization rather than on plot, if that makes sense. Mm. So, yeah, I, I I think that very succinctly sums up the plot. Mm. It is just the which good in it. In story terms, obviously, everything centers around the ring, which Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit. Bilbo Baggins finds the ring in the Hobbit and doesn't know what it is, treats it like a party trick. Almost. It makes him invisible. And as far as he knows, that's all it does. In Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, who also appears in the Hobbit, figures out that it is in fact, it is in fact probably the most powerful weapon in, in the world. And Bilbo's too old, so his nephew Frodo and Frodo's friends set out, first of all, to take it to Rivendell, where the elves... And from there, it's decided that the ring must be destroyed, and they put a little party of people together to take the ring to the only place it can be destroyed, which happens to be in the evil Lord Sauron's home country. So they're literally taking the, the weapon back to the guy that is trying to find it again, so that they can destroy it which is quite a desperate plan. And it's people have fun on the internet pointing out how stupid the plan is.
1: Well, well, it's uh, the, the, it's the meme that, uh, that refers to the meme that gets over
0: Sean Bean meme.
1: One does not simply walk into Mordor.
0: There's that one. And there's also the one where I, I think there's a, how it, how it should have ended um, video. I'll, I'll, put, I'll put a link to it Oh so yeah. It. Yeah. Where like, Frodo just gets on the back of. They the take the eagles, all the, don't they? Instead of walking there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I've got all kinds of. It's a good point. That the that the people who pick holes in it make, but I've got all kinds of headcanon reasons why that wouldn't have worked. So you know. In the end, <laughs> you have to accept that they did what they did, and maybe they weren't the best strateg- strategists in the world. Who knows?
1: Um, mm.
0: And on the way. Throughout the three books, they meet various people. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good. In the films, they don't stop at the house of Tom Bombadil, so we shall not speak of him again unless we talk
1: about No, that. and I, just to briefly uh, reference the books, I'm quite glad that they cut that as... I don't. I don't know how that served the plot in any way. Uh, it felt almost a little bit indulgent. So
0: I, went on, I went on a bit of a rant about this in last week's show. Um, it doesn't serve the plot in any way whatsoever. I've <laughs> I've read I've read the Lord of the Rings every year or every couple of years at least <laughs> since I was a teenager. So many decades now. I've read The House of Tom Bombadil maybe twice. <laughs> Because it's God. it's just so annoying, I'm sure Tom Poy is a lovely guy, but really, I don't need to know that his boots <laughs> are yellow, and he will insist on telling everybody what
1: was that about? <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: anyway, they meet various people, some good, some bad um but that, there's,
1: there's that's another that's another thing we can discuss once we get to the books. <laughs> there is a
0: a sort of theme of falling kingdoms and collapsing empires in the whole thing i mean you've got uh Rohan which is ruled mm. when we first encounter the the Rohirrim um Rohan is ruled by Théoden who is a failing king who's fallen under the influence of um a vile sort of grand vizier figure uh called Gríma who is in the service of one of the bad guys and Rohan He's also a kingdom without a king whose steward is kind of descending into madness and despair to the great detriment.
1: Do you mean Gondor?
0: Yes. Did I say Rohan? Yeah, I meant Gondor. Gondor is... is.
1: Yeah, you said if, Rohan.
0: <laughs> Gondor, Gondor is, is like Rohan. Gondor is this once great kingdom now ruled by uh, a, a failing leader. Gondor's lost its king to the great detriment of the people. And I've read lots of criticism of Lord of the Rings that's kind of tried to draw parallels between those falling empires and Gondor's eventual restoration as it gets its king back at the end of the story. And trying to draw parallels between that and what was going on with the British Empire at the time. Because, you know, Tolkien was an old Victorian, Really, you know, Tolkien was, you know, quite pro empire, quite quite pro British, uh, quite progressive in his views for the time, and we might talk about that too. But you know, people have tried to sort of say, oh, you know, this is an imperialist work. It's 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 saying mm-hmm. that there should be, you know, that monarchy is the best system, and and you know, we we all need a we all need a a king to come and save us because kings are better than everybody else and. And I actually don't think that's what Tolkien's saying.
1: I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't get that impression at all from Tolkien,
0: actually. At all. It's... I mean, he is, he is quite focused in, the, in the, the structure of the societies that he creates. He's quite focused on hierarchy. But I don't think that the message... Well, first of all, I don't think he's actually trying to get a message across here. I think a lot of people look at Tolkien and try and read... But then
1: they go, what society isn't built on some form of a hierarchy?
0: Indeed. But I think also he's trying to... He's built a world which is basically medieval. And although Hmm. he he wasn't a historian by training, he was good enough as a historian to know that medieval societies were hierarchical. So if he's going Hmm. to create a sort of pseudo-medieval world, of course... Of course, it's going to be a story about a yeah. getting his throne back because that's that kind of story. That's that's the genre, if you like.
1: And the thing is that the person who gets his throne back is a ranger from the north. He's kind of a, a man who a man of the people, isn't he? So all yeah. to get his throne back, you know, you're going to root for Aragorn, aren't you? Because he's going to be somebody who actually gives a toss about his people.
0: Yeah, and yeah, Aragorn. You know, yeah, Aragorn's a man who's not used. To, you know, he's not. He's not. Not lived as royalty. He's he's a man who's gone out and grafted and worked and fought. Mm.
1: In fact, he's incredibly uh, reluctant to take back the throne. Mm. <laughs> he's constantly saying, "I don't want the throne."
0: <laughs> throughout well, the
1: entire trilogy well, until the end.
0: And actually, I think you can. I don't know how how deliberate this was, but obviously, in the the trilogy, the, the film trilogy, Aragorn is played by Viggo Mortensen, who is you know not a bad looking chap as i as i understand it certainly uh, i have friends who one of my colleagues at school when uh, these movies are coming out had so many posters of aragorn on her classroom wall it was almost embarrassing but the final few scenes of return of the king when he stopped being strider the ranger and he finally is aragorn king of gondor and he's all cleaned up and his hair's done nice and he's wearing his beard's trimmed and he's wearing a sort of crown thing and instead of wearing sort of his rough outdoorsy ranger gear he's wearing fine robes and stuff doesn't look nearly as good it's almost as though they designed his costume as the king to not suit him to symbolize the fact that yeah this isn't the role he's comfortable in this is the role he's had to us to accept which If it was deliberate and everything else about the film seems to have been. I thought it was quite Mm. a nice touch, actually, to actually make him look wrong Mm. in his role as king. Um, Yeah. Although since I've bounced us to the end of the trilogy, (laughs) we will come back. Um, But since I've bounced us to the end of the trilogy, can I can I just I've, I've got only two complaints about the Peter Jackson trilogy. Both of which are about Return of the King. The other the other one we'll come back to later maybe, but my biggest complaint about Return of the King is it done half drag on at the end. And uh, I understand why. I, mean, mm. I, mean, I speak as somebody who's a fan of the books first. And my God, the book is worse for this. Ja- oh yeah. Jackson actually cut a hell of a lot out mm. of out of the end of Return of the King. It's just... And
1: I'm actually, that that's that's another aspect of the book, which I'm quite glad that they cut out, because mm. I know the whole point of J.R. Tolkien having the the Hobbiton, because in the book, Hobbiton is actually, the they, they, um, isn't it, the army, the armies actually reach Hobbiton, don't they, or the Shire,
0: um, and they actually attack. Some of Saruman's men do. Yeah, and Saraman basically takes over the shire, the shire.
1: Yeah, and the whole point that J.R.R. Tolkien is trying to make there is how if we're going to follow the uh, World War One allegory, which, well, let's face it, it what, the, the Lord of the Rings was a World War One, World War Two allegory. That um, not even the homestead was safe; even mm. that was attacked. Um, and I get the point. Like that, that is perfect. Like that belongs in the books and that serves the purpose of the books but personally i'm quite glad that they cut that out the films mm. because Aye. of the very end the, the last scene of the whole trilogy is that that powerful last line from frodo we set out to save the shire them and we did and i think if they had to actually reached the shire i don't think that line would have yeah, the impact that it does I so I'm quite glad that
0: it I think that's fair although I think I might be about to make you disagree with me on something because I'm glad they cut the Sky and the Shire out of the movie as well I just think they should have cut a hell of a lot more out because basically in filmmaking terms in, in pure okay. cinema terms for me you know the scene in Gondor where Aragorn is crowned and the mm. he, having put on his crown, he walks down towards the hobbits who were standing at the end of the sort of sticky out bit of Gondor. There's a there's a great description. Yeah, the, pictures in the show notes, folks. Um, and they bow, and Aragorn just mm. says, "My friends, you bow to no one," and everybody cheers for me, that's the end of the movie. That's where it stops. Because everything that, everything that comes after that is is stuff that happens after the end of, end of the story that the film was telling, if that makes sense. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and I think be, be, because of the way we, we're sort of conditioned to to watch film, we expect to get that, that climax. And then the film's done. And in Lord of the Rings, in Return of, the film Return of the King, you get that climax, you get that resolution of the thing that they set out to do, which was destroy the ring and return the king. That's, that's, that's what the film makes you feel is, is going on. And they do that. And then we've got another 20 minutes of people talking about how sad they are. And I appreciate why that's there. And in the book, I think it works. Although, again, I do think the book drags on a little bit as well. But for me, it doesn't work in the film. And I know that that means we would, lo- we would lose that f- that wonderful last meeting between Sam and Frodo. But it would have made it a much more dynamic film, is all I'm saying.
1: I... I have to say I disagree, and that's mainly not. and I think it's mainly because those last twenty minutes are there to serve the end of the character arc for Frodo, because throughout the Return of the King, the Frodo he's constantly saying, "I have a feeling I'm not going to go, um, I'm not going to see this again. I have a feeling I'm not going to be," you know, mm. Sam's constantly going on for you know, "Oh, I need to save some food for the trip home." Um, And the thing is, again, going back to that final uh, line for Frodo, we set out to save the, the Shire, Sam, but not for me. And it's because that him bearing the ring has had such a... it's had taken such a toll on him and... This Again, actually, this is is something I was discussing in a separate thread in um, response to how somebody kind of misunderstood the whole point of the ending, Frodo's ending. Mm -hmm. He is basically, for me, he represents all the soldiers that returned home. And once they returned home, they had what was their, you know, the place that they saved completely changed how they saw it because of the things that they had experienced and the things that they had seen that place for them though. Yes, they saved their home or for Frodo the Shire. um, But they've changed and they can't, they just don't seem to have a place in it anymore because they were changed men. Mm. So they couldn't go back home in their minds. um. But there was still a hopeful or happy ending for Frodo because maybe, perhaps, they could find their home elsewhere. But they, because for, for them, because these were boys that went off to war, mm-hmm. um, that represents their innocence, their childhoods. And they almost, it's, and it sounds sad, but it's almost like they don't belong there anymore. But perhaps somewhere else could be their home. And hence why he went, Frodo left with Gandalf and Bilbo to, um, the West. The hay- is it the Havens? No, not the Havens. The, havens, the um, yeah. The West, yeah. Because that could be where they found their peace, wherever that may be, even though it's not home, where they grew up, but they could find peace elsewhere. Um, And I felt that that was incredibly poignant and beautiful. And yes, it drags it on a bit, but I think there needs to be, after everything that had happened previously in the film, uh, um you kind of need, and yes, it makes everyone cry, and it makes everyone sad, but I think that that was kind of necessary because I think the thing that I, I people tend to forget about the books, and this was something that only struck me after I reread them recently is actually how emotional these books are, mm. the amount of um, the the importance of emotionality that I think a lot of people overlook. And I think the film's captured that beautifully. And these this is and, and I think that scene kind of that um is that, that is, is emblematic of how important emotionality is, not just for the characterization, but for the for, you know, the themes that the films and the books explore and address and the the the, whole, the 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 what the the films and the books are about, yeah. As we were talking about earlier, it's about the pass between good and evil, and I think that is. So I I I would argue actually that that scene is actually quite important, and that's, was that's perfect. A, and again, I, well I think the very final line, um, line was actually a voiceover from Frodo, where he says the per, you know one cannot be cannot, yeah cannot, born in two you must be one so you can live your life and i mm-hmm. think that's how he felt when he returned home so it's so for him i think the gray havens was a place where he could heal could truly heal
0: i think that's a fair point and i think yeah it, the the i feel, I feel this more strongly about the book but I, I can see that it also works for the film yes that final sequence after the ring's been destroyed after the king's been restored and the hobbits have returned home to find it in the state that it's in and and they, they the Frodo not being out to settle and having to go away and all of that. I think that is actually directly addressing the situation of people that Tolkien would have known, found themselves in when they came back from mm-hmm. the First World War. Because people often forget that Tolkien was a teacher. He taught um English and linguistics at and I always get this wrong, and I should have looked it up before. I... Was he Oxford or Cambridge? I think he was Oxford.
1: Yeah, because um, he was a contemporary of because C... he was friends with C.S. Lewis, and he was, he was at Cambridge, wasn't he? he? he was, which,
0: which is, I think, one no, of Oxford. The reason... Sorry, one oh, of the reasons <laughs> why um, I think Narnia is such a gateway drug for Lord of the Rings is because C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien knew each other and were very <laughs> I Don't worry, about this, I will edit out the long pause while we both go to Google to find this. Stuff. Occupation. No, he was the professor of Anglo-Saxon and fellow of Pembroke College, Oxford. And then the Merton professor of English language and literature and fellow of Merton College, Oxford. So, yeah, he was an, he was an Oxford. Oh, OK. Professor. So, yeah, but people forget that about him. Oh, OK. He was he was a teacher. He He would have had students. He would have watched. He would have watched contemporaries of his, people that he grew up with. Go to fight in the First World War. He was born in uh, 1892. Thank you, Wikipedia. Um, So he was what? In his. Mid 20s when the First World War broke out. So absolutely. I don't know what his war record was. Again, I could probably look it up. Um, But he would absolutely have known people. That fought and died in the trenches, and he would have known people who had fought and survived and been irreparably damaged. By their experience in the trenches uh and of mm. course when the second world war came around it would have been students of his at oxford who were going and joining the raf and joining the army as officers and all that kind of thing and again he will he will without question have had students of his kit that were killed and they were injured and that were traumatized and there's no way that experience doesn't come through in this book and and is then reflected in the films. You know, the idea that mm. war is a terrible thing that is to be avoided if at all possible, but sometimes it has to be fought.
1: Yeah, I was going to say these books and films are very anti-war. <laughs> like,
0: yeah. he But also not pacifist. Mm. <clears throat> Tolkien himself always said that no, he was not. Because obviously he wrote, the, he wrote Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit was written before the Second World War. Lord of the Rings was written after. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, lots of people have kind of done the armchair psychology thing and gone, "Oh, yeah, I see what he's doing there." Sauron's Hitler, and Saruman's like Mussolini or Stalin or somebody. Um, now, as a reader, you can and, and a and a viewer of the films, you can certainly draw those parallels. But Tolkien always insisted that's not what he was doing. And I, um... but I think he might have been doing it unconsciously.
1: Yeah, it's very. Yeah, I. <sighs> Again, from recently re-reading and rewatch, re the books and rewatching the films, I don't think it's that simple. Again, yes, it's very clear that it's an allegory, that there's a parallel between World War One and World War Two here, but I don't think these figures are supposed to be standing.
0: No, I don't think for... so either. It's not an allegory. It's maybe it has influences. Yes. Yeah. yeah. From, from real history, and and let's, what book doesn't? But I don't think it's the straight. Well, the, I think
1: the only um, parallel, I think, is that there was the war from the first age and the war from the second age. Mm. I think. Well, but, I so think... World War I, World War II. But that's it. I think that's
0: it. I think the thing, the thing to me, and this is probably just my reading of it, I think the thing that comes through in the story to me that I think might be an influence that Tolkien took from the Second World War is he makes it very clear through his characters They don't want to fight. They don't want to have to do this. They don't want to have to deal with Sauron. But they all recognize that it doesn't matter that they don't want to fight because this is a fight that has to be fought. Yes. And if, if you sit back and do nothing, then you will be destroyed eventually. There's no safety in staying at home.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There are some threats you which have face.
1: And I think. Yeah, which is basically like, look at what they had, you know, this is basically how World War Two started. Yeah, I, I think. Because they saw Hitler on the rise, and I, I, I think the, and Britain had no
0: choice but because the, they could see what was happening. And I think there are parallels. Well, it's more complicated than that, but yeah. <laughs> Tolkien's a much cleverer writer. It is more complicated than that, but I think that influence is there. That, that, you know, the characters in the end all come to accept that, yeah, we don't want to do this, but we don't really have any choice because the alternative is destruction. Mm. Um, and I think that might be a, an influence that came from Tolkien's experience in, with the Second World War. Mm. Whereas I think his view of the First World War was much, I was going to say, much more negative. I, I don't mean that in in the sense that he had a positive view of the Second World War, right? but I think he thought that the First World War was a waste that didn't need to have happened. See what I mean? It does sort of stop a little bit abruptly, but we were about to get into something quite complex and considered as both of us kind of thrash our way through what we're actually thinking. Uh, So that you can look forward to next week. But my goodness, wasn't it nice to hear a voice on here that wasn't me? I know I enjoyed it, but still my my show. So um, you've got me again. Sorry. Uh, and it's time to move on. Uh, no science news this week, because I- I've, I've done a lot of that, and I don't want to bang on about billionaires in rockets anymore. Not, not, not again, not for a bit. Uh, so we're going to get straight into the comics we're recommending for this week. OK, so it's been a bit of a weird week for new comics this week, because a fairly large chunk of what we were expecting hasn't arrived. For once, it's not the fault of the much and justly maligned distributor Diamond Comics UK. It is, in fact, the fault of something going wrong on the other side of the Atlantic. They did send me an email explaining it, but like all emails from Diamond explaining why things have got messed up, I didn't read it because it's never helpful. So there's a limited number of new things coming in, but probably... The one that stood out for me the most was issue one of Aliens Aftermath. Now, there is an Aliens comic ongoing already. We're on issue five, I think, and it's very good. And I do love me some Xenomorph action. I really do. But Aliens Aftermath is a very specific thing. Aliens Aftermath is celebrating the 35th anniversary of James Cameron's Aliens. Yep, you heard that right. It really has been 35 years since Ripley went down to Hadley's Hope with a gang of colonial marines and everybody died. It makes me feel old too, but what can you do? Now, Aliens is one of my very favourite films. I actually prefer it to Alien and that's not a thing on Alien. I love Alien too, but Aliens just hit harder for me. I think it's because I was a teenager when Aliens came out. I wasn't old enough to go and see it in the cinemas, was old enough to be annoyed that I wasn't old enough to go and see it in the cinemas, whereas Alien, when it came out, I was in primary school, and so it was a thing I'd heard of, but it really wasn't for me, aged, whatever I was, about seven, I think. So, Aliens was a movie that I really wanted to watch as a teenager. And so getting to watch it on VHS uh, while I was after, just after my last GCSE exam, as I recall, uh, round a mate's house with a Chinese takeaway, it was like a big thing. And I've loved this movie ever since. I can quote whole chunks of it at you. I'm not gonna, don't worry. Um, So fittingly, for the 35th anniversary of the movie, Alien's Aftermath, the comic, is set 35 years after Ripley and Hicks took off and nuked the site from orbit because it was the only way to be sure. Okay, one quote, just one. I won't do any more, I promise. Any more and it'll be game over, man. Just game over. Okay, no more, definitely no more. So it's been 35 years. Since the tragedy of Hadley's Hope. And it's been a mystery to the people of the world in which Aliens is set ever since. Because you can be sure that Wayland Utoni didn't tell people what actually happened. And so people on Earth, they don't know what happened on LV 46. So a crew of investigative journalists are heading for LV-426 to find out, determined to bring back the truth and find out what's going on at that bombed-out nuclear crater. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I cannot tell you how much I love this comic. It hits exactly the right tone and exactly the right note. It, it feels genuinely like the sequel that Aliens should have had. Now, say what you like about Alien 3. And, you know, seriously, say what you like about Alien 3. I'm never going to defend it. The only good thing about Alien 3 is Brian Glover. And that's only because Brian Glover is brilliant in everything he's in. Um, Aliens never got a decent sequel. And it's it deserved it. The, the Aliens comics have always been pretty good. There aren't very many duffers. In the comics but this is a direct follow-on from the the story of aliens and it's it's a fitting continuation i really enjoyed it can't recommend it highly enough if you like your sci-fi this is great uh it came out yesterday in fittingly again the actual 35th anniversary of the original release of the film so that was that was Uncharacteristically well-timed by Marvel, uh, it's written by Benjamin Percy. Uh, it's penciled by uh, David Watcher, and he does a fantastic job. Uh, and the whole thing, chef's kiss, as the young people apparently are saying. I don't know why, but the whole thing just brilliant. Okay. Now, as I said, a bit of a dearth of well, new comics in general this week. but certainly a bit of a dearth of issue ones. So, my next comic of the week is a comic that's actually on issue five, but not. I'm not just making it a pick of the week because I am enjoying the series, although I am. I'm making it a pick of the week because it does something that... um I don't know, I think I've... S- I haven't wanted to see this since the late 80s, but now I've got it, I realise that I've been missing it since the late 80s, if that makes sense. If you've read Batman Year One, you will know that it finishes with James Gordon, a police lieutenant, James Gordon, as he was then, having a little internal monologue about how having the Batman around might be quite useful and how things are going crazy and how the current crisis is um, some guy in a clown suit threatening to poison the Gotham Reservoir. Now, they've never told that story. It was just the way year one ended. And I... Honestly, I've never really thought about it since. It was a a nice way to say, oh, here's here's, here's the Joker coming. You know, the whole madness that Gotham was going to become is just starting. Batman arrived just in time. You know, nice bit of narrative stuff. But now, in The Joker, issue five, they've told that story. This is the story of the Joker's very first night in the Arkham Asylum for the Criminally Insane. It's after he's tried to poison the reservoir, he's been placed in Arkham, awaiting trial, and uh, Detective Lieutenant James Gordon realises that this is no ordinary inmate and that this really is something special, something dangerous, something unusual. This really is a sign that things are about to change in Gotham forever and for the worst. And again, it's really, really well done. This kind of sort of retconning, backwards looking, fitting things into old continuities approach doesn't always work. And you've got to be very, very careful if if you go down this route as a comic creator. Here, I think they've genuinely pulled it off. It, it's not that we're going to get any insight into the Joker's character because there's no insight to be had into the Joker's character, really. That's sort of the point. Um, and, you know, I, I as somebody who's worked in and around mental health in the past, I do still always have this little issue with Batman villains in particular. And I, I don't like that, you know, all of Batman's villains end up in an asylum, as though mental health issues turn you into some kind of raving criminal lunatic because they don't but that is a part of accepted batman mythology now it's the way it is and i think modern takes on arkham are actually reasonably progressive so i'm prepared to let it slide uh, and as i say this is a nice look back it was a, it was a, for me it was a nice reminder of the experience of reading batman year one for the first time which I did in about 1989, and it gave me a little nostalgic frisson too. It just built on on that final couple of panels as James Gordon walking, walking away at the end of year one. So again, if you are an aging comics geek like myself, you're probably going to get some nostalgia feels out of this. If you're not, it doesn't matter. If you haven't read Batman Year One, it doesn't matter. Having read Batman Year One is not necessary for enjoying this issue so although if you wanted to come to the shop and buy a copy of batman New one i could certainly help you with that um it's just it's just a really nicely solidly put together comic uh, there's a backup story in here as well which i'm not going to go into detail about um but it's quite good you know uh, i'm i'm enjoying it and i don't i generally don't like backup strips i i, I usually think they're there for padding And I think in this case, I think the backup strip actually also has something to add. So that's both good and unusual. So those are our new comics of the week. Okay. so since I don't have a whole bunch of comics to talk about and not everybody listening to this likes comics anyway, although I can try and persuade you that you're wrong about that. I want to branch out into other entertainment media for a little bit. because. I haven't talked about podcasts for ages, and as listeners on HCR will know, um, there is a podcast version of this very show. Uh, listeners to the podcast version of this very show also know that because they're listening to the podcast version. Yeah, I probably didn't need to say that, but hey, um, and I, I love podcasts. I was an early adopter. Um, I got an MP3 player relatively early on in the craze. I don't listen to music. So I was looking for spoken word podcasts. And my goodness, I found a bunch. And I've been listening to podcasts pretty much all the time ever since. If you see me with headphones on, I'm not listening to music. I'm listening to a podcast, um, either a a science-based podcast or a comedy podcast or a story. Because I do love audiobooks and podcasts are brilliant for telling stories in that way. One of the first I came across, not the first, but one of the first I came across was a podcast series called Playing for Keeps by a writer called Merle Lafferty. It was ages ago. It was, I think, maybe 2006. Might have been 2007, but it was it was a long time ago and I loved it. And I don't know what prompted me, but out of of slightly nostalgic feels. Earlier this week I had a look to see if it was still available, and it is. It's fifteen episodes long, and it's an absolutely fantastic comedic superhero story. Basically, it tells the story of a woman called Keepsy Branson. Now, Keepsy lives in Seventh City, which is the birthplace of superpowers. It's where the Academy that trains the superheroes and indeed creates the superheroes is based. Now, Keepsy isn't a hero, neither are any of her friends, because although they do have powers, they're not powerful enough for the heroes to consider working with them. They've been you know, Keepsy was kicked out of the academy for being too weak, and Keepsy and her friends have an uneasy relationship with. The heroes, because they think the heroes are a bunch of arrogant idiots. She doesn't like them, she doesn't trust them. But, like everybody else in Seven City, she has to live with them and she has to make sure that she doesn't use her powers in a way that contravenes the strict laws that govern non licensed powered people in Seven City. Now, Keepsy has a very interesting power. Basically, you can't steal from Keepsy. That's why they call her Keepsy. If she owns something, it is hers. You cannot take that thing away from her unless she gives it to you. That's her power. And that's a power that the Academy said was useless. One morning, as Keepsy is making her way to work at the bar she owns, she gets caught up in the middle of a fight between the superhero's palace and White Lightning and the villain Doodad, master of machines. In that fight, she's taken hostage by Doodad and rescued by White Lightning, who is mean to her. But Doodad slips something into Keepsy's pocket. Something that it turns out everybody wants. It's a great story. Um, as it goes on, we learn all kinds of things about the villains and the heroes and where they're from and what the motivations are, but mostly we get to know the characters that frequent Keepsy's bar. We get to learn about Keepsy and we get to learn that just because something doesn't appear significant doesn't mean it actually is insignificant so there's a lot of, of humour and when it's 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 one of Merlafferty's earlier works um i think she's a better writer now than she was then but this is still a hugely entertaining thrill ride of a story which I cannot recommend highly enough it's just brilliant it really really is Uh, links uh, to the download site in the show notes Uh, please enjoy some superhero goodness in your ears and that is just about it for this week before we go though I do just want to mention free comic book day I don't do ads for the store on here very often. And this isn't really an ad, because I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm trying to give stuff away. Every year, for the last 20 years, the comic shops of the UK and North America, and possibly other places, I don't know about other places, have taken the first Saturday of May and just given away free comics. The publishers produce special edition comics for this very purpose and we just give them away no purchase necessary you can just come down to your comic store and pick up free comics take them away read them if you like them maybe you want to maybe you want to buy the next one in the series maybe you learn find a new character that you really enjoy maybe you read it and think ooh, glad i didn't pay for that but either way it's a way to find out about new stuff new comics that you haven't read before or even to read comics risk-free for the first time, to see if you just like comics. Now, obviously, last year, there was no free comic book day. We were kind of shut in May. This year, we were also shut in May. But we're not letting that stop us. Our comeback will be bigger than our setback. Free comic book day this year is on August the 14th. That's Saturday, August the 14th. I will have free comics to give away to anybody who wants them, as long as stocks of the special edition free comic book day comics last, all you have to do is come down on August the 14th, have a look at what's available, and decide if you want to take anything away with you. No purchase necessary, no catch. The only thing I would ask is that you don't take more than one of anything and you don't take anything you don't think you'll enjoy. Leave that for somebody who will. That's all I ask. So pencil that into your diaries. In fact, no, don't pencil it in, write it in with a permanent sharpie. And I look forward, hopefully, to seeing many of you under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema on August the 14th, just to pick up some free comics. If you happen to buy something while you're there, I will really enjoy that. But no pressure and no purchase necessary. So that's it. All that remains is to tell you that The Geeks at the Gates is proudly produced in Yorkshire and is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media. We will see you next week with more stuff on Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and more geeky stuff besides. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else until we meet back here again. Just to go geeking.